for it sounds like when someone steals Y'all good. It started, and, and the newcomers to the class, if I didn't tell you, uh, Podbean, the free app, I, I record all the lectures, I put them on podcasts. I know there's a couple of y'all that's already joined, but it's a way not just to, to stay out of class, but it's a way to back up and review the material that we cover during class. It, it's, a good, it's a good thing to have, I think. Uh, tonight's chapter, chapter seven, the human body. There's some things in here that's going to go over terms that we just need to know. Uh, There's a video that we're going to watch about a cell because I think out of a lot of these terms in the beginning of the chapter, it's really a couple of terms for an advanced test that you probably need to know. Some of it, I'm going to give you my common sense explanation of what it is and we'll kind of go from there. Uh, I probably won't get through this entire chapter tonight. It will be a little bit of a review for for some of y'all with a little bit of bonus material, if you will. But for those who are just joining the class, it, it's going to be a probably a pretty good review as well. So um, in this chapter, we're going to talk about that, that, and that. All right. Gross anatomy. What's, what, what is gross anatomy? Now, I know you look at some folks as anatomy and you think it's gross, but what does that really mean? Okay. Stuff that you can just kind of see with the naked eye, right? Um, microscopic anatomy includes body parts visible only through a microscope, obviously. And and then as it as it pertains to the EMT curriculum in this chapter, we're going we're going to be talking about cells, okay? And you need to understand the process of how cells take takes things in, how cells get gets rid of things and things of that nature too, because let me just ask y'all something. Just a basic review. A bunch of cells make up what? Not yet. Tissue. Then a bunch of tissue makes up what? Organs. A bunch of organs make up a organ system. Then a bunch of organ systems make up makes up a what? And what are you? An organism. So it all pertains. Okay. You, sir, are not a tree. All right. Basic functional unit of the body is the cell. Uh, Strange thing, not strange thing, really, but uh, uh, something to know about a cell is a cell has to constantly produce energy, right? And if that cell, does it really have the option of stopping? Once the cell stops producing energy, what happens? It dies. And then... Going back to what I said just a second ago, if a bunch of cells die, then what dies? You die. Tissue. Man, don't, man, don't be. Negative Nancy. He's yeah. with comments now. Yeah, so, so y'all get it. And then a bunch of tissue dies, then the organ, then the organ systems, and then the organism. Cell is the basic functional unit of the body. It's extremely varied in the shape and function. Uh, cells become specialized to perform a specific function. And again... What we just talked about right there. The whole breakdown. Basically all cells have the same rough makeup. Cell membranes, nucleus, and the cytoplasm. I know the book gets into a bunch of other stuff, but what does the nucleus of the cell do basically? 
kind of runs the show, right? It produces the energy. It, it does all those things. And what is unique about the membrane or, or what is a, a, a specialized part of the membrane? Something that's very important. It's permeable. What does that mean? Things can kind of come in. Things can kind of go out. Some things come in, come in and go out on its own, right? Based on, I guess, the size more than anything else to break it down in simpler terms. Uh, some things need a little help getting in and out because the size is too large. Okay? And we'll talk about some of those things. Uh, just for test-taking purposes, I would, I would understand these terms, like the mitochondrion. What, what specifically does the mitochondrion do? It is the powerhouse of cell. It is what produces the energy. Alright? We were talking a minute ago about permeability in the cell membrane and how it allows things to move in and out of the cells. Uh, if you were going to be asked a question about this particular slide, uh, I would just understand the difference between the terms hydrophobic and hydrophilic. Hydro meaning what? Water. Water. That was on the board tonight, wasn't it? Or, or last class, one of the two. So if something is phobic, okay, now, that's correct. So would you think that the hydrophobic layer attracts water or repels water? So hydrophilic layer then would do what? In general, and that's correct, and that's what you need to know about that slide, but in general, how does water tend to move in the human body as far as well, let's just back up a little bit further. Water water exists in three places in the human body, or those three fluid compartments. Does anybody remember what they are? All right. Well, you combined some things, but you're correct. All right. If something is intracellular, that means it's inside the cell. If it's extracellular, it's outside of the cell. But there's two extracellular compartments, intravascular, which means it's in the vessels. And then what's that third space? Interstitial. Interstitial. That's that microscopic space between the cells, okay? So all that, and listen, and how, especially when we get the next chapter, pathophysiology, you know, if you have a basic understanding of how fluid and water moves throughout the body under normal circumstances, then you'll have a better understanding of how these natural and normal processes are affected by disease and things of that nature and injury. So some of these terms, some of these things are going to be a little boring, but it really does, it really does come back into play. What is cytoplasm? Okay, that's kind of like the cytoplasm in the cells, kind of like the plasma in blood, right? It is the vehicle in which all the formed elements or formed bodies move through or is transported by. Cytoplasm is the fluid-like material that, uh, that contains the contents of the cell. Cytosol is the fluid portion of the cytoplasm. Why in the world would you ever need to know that? One, only one reason I can think of. Nazareth registry might ask you, right? Mm-hmm. They will. They might. Ooh. They're dirty rotten. <laughs> Organelles. What are those? <laughs> okay, but what? That's what they do. But what are the organelles? 
Ooh. Aren't the ones that <clears throat> aren't the organelles the ones that uh, kind of send out messages on what exactly the cell needs? You guessing? A little bit. I'm trying to recall my uh, human anatomy class. Now, what does your book say? I, I'm not saying you're wrong, buddy. But what does your book say? So the book says the same thing slide does, huh? Yes, sir. Huh? Sure Keeping it in context and, and the example I was using about the blood and then the formed elements like the red blood cells, white blood cells, your platelets and all that, the organelles would kind of be that version but inside of the cell. They are your centrioles, the cilia and flagella, the ribosomes, and the endoplasmic reticulum. Does your book break down what each of those organelles do? What do centrioles do? They are cylindrical <clears throat> structures made up of short microtubules. During cell division, the centrioles form a spindle-shaped structure needed for movement of the ox surviving nucleic acid DNA strand, cardiac muscle cells, skeletal muscle cells, mature red blood cells, and typical neurons have no centrioles. So I don't know about y'all, but I heard want, 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 DNA. Want, 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 right? So it's got something to do with the DNA. Good enough. Cilia and flagella, what is that? Huh? Hair-like structures. Hair-like structures that help move things around. Ribosomes, RNA. RNA, endoplasmic reticulum. What is that? It ain't all that stuff right there, is it? Yes. Might be. Looks like it. The little specks. All right. You've got continuing on with the organelles, the Golgi complex, the lysosomes, microfilaments, mitochondria. I mean, uh, these are terms that you kind of need to familiarize yourself with, but I wouldn't get hung up too terribly much. The nucleus is the largest structure of the cell. It is the center of the cell. It is the control center of the cell where, where all the things take place, right? It contains genetic instructions needed to synthesize proteins that determine cell structures and functions. And, uh, yep, all those things are true. So what is Krebs cycle? Krebs cycle. Somebody find in the book and tell me what it is. Okay, so what does Krebs cycle do then? What is it? It is a sequence of enzymatic reactions involving the metabolism of carbon chain glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids yield carbon dioxide, water, and high energy phosphate bonds. Uh, what, what page is that on? It is on page 232. Everybody look at that, 232. Everybody go to it if you're not there already because that's about a paragraph worth of stuff that really should be about one sentence. It's 
So basically, Krebs cycle, and, and do me a favor, Alex, read that again, but a little bit louder, please. Okay. The Krebs cycle, also called the citric acid cycle or tricarboxylic acid cycle, is an aerobic process. It is a sequence of enzymatic reactions involving the metabolism of carbon chains of glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids to yield carbon dioxide, water, and high-energy phosphate bonds, ATP. What's she say in English? The creation of energy. The creation of energy. All right, metabolism. The bringing in of oxygen and sugar, right? Through the process, through the uh, mitochondria and all that other stuff, and the Krebs cycle, it is the production of energy. That's aerobic metabolism. And what are the normal byproducts of aerobic metabolism? A little bit of carbon dioxide, a little bit of heat, probably a little bit of moisture, right? That's all that is. Krebs cycle explains in minuscule details diffusion, to, to put it in very simple terms. Does that make sense? So, hey, listen, there's folks who put their kids through college writing these complicated words, right? It's not that complicated. It's really not. So, cellular respiration. Listen, and and I'm not trying to shortchange anybody, but the life cycle of the cell... Uh, basically, the interphase. What does the book tell you about interphase? The cell obtains nutrients to grow and to uh, Basically, it grows. And how, does, how do they typically duplicate, right? Cell division, mitosis, cytoplasmic division. You know, read this stuff. Somebody get out your... Uh, your knowledge objectives for chapter 7. How much of this do you see in the knowledge objectives? Do you? What do you see? Say that again. Say it on. Okay. Cellular respiration. But do you see any of this other stuff? About the organelles? Okay. So cellular respiration, what do y'all think they're talking about there? Cell division and the growth occurs approximately the same rate as cell death. And that's, that gets back to homeostasis, right? Your, your fluid content or the fluid levels in the body, the oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in the body, everything tries to naturally balance itself out. So and I guess it, unless there's some disease process that's affecting your, your body, um, the cells should be replenished about at the same rate as they, as they are dying. I would just understand that malignancy or malignant, that's when normal genes begin to mutate. And that's a term that you do need to understand because that will definitely come back in in the next chapter. But we're talking about some disease process, right? Some pathophysiology is affecting on the body. Cells use glucose and oxygen to release energy from organic, organic compounds. That is that, uh, that aerobic metabolism. That's the Krebs cycle. So glyco means what? 
Lysis. I know we haven't gotten to it yet. Okay. So basically that's when the sugar is being used. Krebs cycle, aerobic process. We've talked about that. And again, you, you got that big long paragraph, but that's really all we're talking about. All right, cellular transport mechanisms refer to how materi materials enter and exit the cell. Uh, what, what are different ways that we've talked about in EMT or that you may remember that through which, uh, I guess, either liquids or compounds or whatever or, or molecules enter and exit cells? We talked about diffusion, right? When we talk about diffusion, we're, a lot of times we're referring to oxygen and carbon dioxide, correct? Does that require work to take place, or is that like a natural, natural. kind of movement? Things kind of through diffusion and osmosis, because when you talk about water moving in and out, those things kind of move from areas of higher concentration to areas of lower concentration until they balance out, right? But it's kind of a passive process. There are other processes that do require a little bit of work. So we talked about diffusion, and I just threw osmosis out there as well. What's another way that compounds or molecules in particular will move into a cell? Facilitated diffusion. That means it needs to get in the cell, right? But if something, if you facilitate something, what are you doing? You're kind of helping it occur. You're, you're making it easier for it to happen. What is a compound that has to get into the cells that can't get there by itself? Sugar or glucose. So facilitated diffusion would be an example of how things kind of move into the cells. and um, But that kind of requires a little bit of work. Uh, I have a video that I've already looked up and I'm going to play you for in a second here. But we'll hold on till we get to it. But... Diffusion is a passive movement of a solute from an area of higher to lower concentration. That's what we were saying just a minute ago. It's a natural occurrence. It moves from one side of that one cell thick membrane, that is the cell membranes, until the things kind of balance out on both sides. Amount of carbon dioxide that remains in arterial blood is almost equal to the amount of carbon dioxide exhaled. Um, and I would just take from that just knowing that the the biggest place that diffusion takes place that, that we talk about is going to be in the lungs, right? That's that external respiration. When you exhale, you don't get rid of all of the carbon dioxide, right? Some is going to remain, and that's all that's really saying. Um, where's some organs in the body where filtration takes place? Kidneys, Kidneys liver, yeah. Waste are removed from the blood and excreted in the urine. Facilitated diffusion. A carrier molecule moves substances in or out of cells. And keeping with the example we used a minute ago, what would the carrier molecule be for sugar? Insulin. Insulin. That's right. The number of molecules transported is directly proportional to the amount of concentration. And somebody somebody get on your phone and look up the word endocytosis. 
Now, before you even do it, though, prefix endo means what? C-Y-T? So, can you kind of figure that out without looking it up? And what do we, keep it in context, what are we talking about? We're talking about bringing things inside of the cell, right? So, endocytosis, if you just break the word down, we're talking about the, basically the way different things are brought into the cell that can't come in through diffusion alone. Does that make sense? All right, I got a video for y'all. Hold on. It's, it's riveting. <laughs> are often particles or large polar molecules that cannot cross the hydrophobic plasma membrane. Many single-celled eukaryotes employ endocytosis to ingest such food particles. In this process, the plasma membrane extends outward and surrounds the food particle. Cells use three major types of endocytosis, phagocytosis, pinocytosis, and receptor-mediated endocytosis. If the material the cell takes in is particulate, such as a bacterium or a fragment of organic matter, the process is called phagocytosis. If the material the cell takes in is liquid, it is called pinocytosis. Specific molecules, such as low-density lipoproteins, LDL, are often transported into eukaryotic cells through receptor-mediated endocytosis. Molecules to be transported first bind to That's specific receptors on the plasma membrane. The interior portion of the receptor protein is embedded in the membrane. The protein clathrin coats the inside of the membrane in the area of the pit. When an appropriate collection of molecules gathers in the coated pit, the pit deepens and seals off to form a coated vesicle which carries the molecules into the cell. Exocytosis is the reverse of endocytosis. This process results in the discharge of material from vesicles at the cell surface to the outside of the cell. So, in the real world, right on the fire engine or, or working on an ambulance, how much of that do you think you really have to know? But it is, some of the basic concepts are important to know, and it may be on that pitch. It's important so you understand what's going on. All right, so, yep, that's what all that means right there, too. All right, osmosis. Again, when when we're talking about osmosis, what's typically moving? Water. And it, how does water move? Higher to lower. How does a chamois work? Okay, sham wow, chamois, whatever you want to call it. How do, if you take a dry chamois 
and rub it across, across the wet surface, what's it going to do? Well, it's not really going to suck. If it's dry, how's it? does it work really well? So it kind of needs to be a little wet too, right? So what does that have to do with osmosis or even surface tension or anything else? Can anybody explain that? Right. So how does that apply to this? The water, the surface tension in that area of lower concentration um, is going to be drawing, where the water, where there's higher concentration of solute, it's going to draw water from that lower end to kind of equal it out. Hmm. So last time you used the chamois, I bet y'all were all sitting there thinking, man, this surface tension and osmosis, that... I think of it all the time. Yeah. All right. So, and talking about the movement of flow of fluid again and tonicity, the tone of a fluid. What are we talking about there? When we say the it, the tonicity of a fluid, what are we really measuring? What are we talking about? Concentration of what? Huh? Okay. Concentration of a solution or its ability to draw or give water, right? If something is hypertonic, somebody look in the book, right? And I want you to just give me the definition of tonicity because I don't think we've really gotten that out there properly yet. Concentration of a solution or ability to draw or give water is tonicity. Okay. But that has a lot to do with what though that's in the that's in the water or what water in the body follows what sodium sodium okay so basically we're talking about the natural fluid in the bodies that we have and all they all all of our fluids have a little bit of sodium in it right so it's a tonicity so we're looking at if you introduce like say an iv fluid into the body we're looking at the tonicity of that fluid in relationship to the fluid that's already in the body how well is it matched up, right? Is it If it's hypertonic, that means what? It's got a little bit more than what the fluid that's in the body normally. Does that make sense? So if something is a hypertonic fluid, how does that affect the shift or the movement of waters that's in the body? Think about the three fluid compartments that we already talked about. It, the fluid is in the cell, it's in the vessels, and it's in the microscopic spaces between the cells, right? So if you introduce a hypertonic solution inside the vessel, it's going to, drop in water from the cell. It's going to pull water from the cell, from the interstitial space, into the vessel, right? Because it's hypertonic. Water will move out of the cell. If you introduce... A hypotonic, what's that going to do? It's going to pull water out of the vessel, out of the interstitial space, and into the cell. What's the medical prefix iso mean? Equal. So if you introduce an isotonic solution into the vessel, that's not going to cause a major fluid shift in any direction, right? It's just what they call a volume expander. You're tricking the body into believing you have a certain amount of volume inside the vessel. 
but it doesn't cause the fluid to shift in any fashion. And listen, this is something that you do need to know because it gets into the... Yes, sir? So which end of the... I forgot. Which end of the spectrum is Hextend on? It's what? Hextend. Buddy, I... All right. You're beyond the scope of practice. Got it. In reality, as an advanced EMT, Courtney, how many different choices do you have? In the real world, you go to work at AMR and you break open the IV box, okay? You you only really have the one choice, right? All we give are isotonic crystalloids. That's all we have anymore. We used to give... You know, D5W, we used to give some two, three other little IV solutions, but those are kind of going away anymore. All you really have is the isotonic solutions. But you do need to know hypertonic, isotonic, hypotonic, which way will that cause fluid to shift? Okay, let me just ask you a question. So let's say you had a trauma patient that was bleeding out, and this is, goes to that critical thinking, even though it's not really a, a huge concern anymore. Let's just say you had somebody that was injured and they were bleeding. And then you gave them a, a uh, let's just say, a, a hypotonic solution. What's that going to do to the fluid that's in the vessels? It's going to bring it all back to center. It's going to pull it out of the vessels, all right? And are they already not losing volume in their vessels to begin with? So that would not be a good thing, right? But that's not an option anymore. Just understand how the fluids move based on the different types or the tonicity of the fluid that's introduced. <clears throat> have I rambled enough to confuse everybody? Yes. I have. Really. Good deal. <laughs> no, it's always a good thing. In all seriousness, hypertonic, isotonic, hypotonic, do we understand what, what we're talking about? All right. I'm bagging up a little bit here. The intracellular fluid uh, exists within the individual cells. Extracellular, that's those two other spaces. The intravascular and the interstitial. And again... That is what you call useless. Man, I got a table full of them. Again, in the pre-hospital setting, the IV solutions that we will administer are isotonic crystalloids. And we'll talk more, much more about it later. But what are the two that you might see out there? Normal salines, right? Or lactated rangers. But again, if that sounds like something weird to you right now, don't worry about it because we'll talk about it in depth later. An organ is composed of at least two kinds of tissue, but again, they're, they're tissue with similar functions. That's why they come together and make an organ. And the 12 major organ systems that you need to know before you go take that registry test, you need to understand the integumentary system. What is that in English? Skin. Not just the skin, though. Hair, nails. Yep. It's, it's skin, hair, nails, teeth, connective tissue. 
But it is the largest organ that you have, though, right? Your skin is the largest organ that you have. Skeletal system, muscular system, nervous system, endocrine system. What does the endocrine system do? Regulates. How, how many body functions do you have that are controlled by your endocrine system? Almost all of them? All of them, right? Yeah. Circulatory system, lymphatic system, immune system, respiratory system, digestive system, urinary and reproductive systems. Uh, when I took my paramedic class, the instructor lectured on the endocrine system. And in my entire test on the endocrine system, and I've threatened to do this to an EMT class ever since it happened to me, and I'm not going to, so don't worry. But my entire test on the endocrine system was, uh, was one question. And the question was this. Explain what the paramedic needs to know about the endocrine system as it pertains to patient care. Now, how much can you write on that, you think? Nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yes. So, yep, there's another picture. All right, skeletal system. We'll start with that one. Uh, the skeleton gives us our recognizable human form. Uh, the skeletal system in conjunction with the muscular system also allows for movement. But other than human form... Movement. What else does a skeletal system do for us? What are some general things that it does? Protects, protects. protects vital organs. Support. Except for the abdomen, right? None, none over the abdomen. Right. What else? Support. Okay, support. What else does it do? Red blood cells and white blood cells are formed in the intermedullary canals of the long bones, right? And when we're infants, where are those cells produced? In a liver. Bones constitute the major structure. Ligaments connect bone to bone. Tendons connect bone to what? Muscles. And what does cartilage do? Cushions. Cushions. Yeah, hopefully. Long bones, short bones, flat bones, irregular bones. Uh, of course, the long bones, you're looking at the femur. What's unique about the femur? Longest and strongest bone in the human body. So if it's broken, what are the odds that something else is damaged? You just don't know it yet. Okay. All right. The tibia and fibula, where are they? Lower leg. Which one's the shin bone? Tibia. So the fibula is a little posterior, a little lateral to the tibia, and it serves as an attachment point for muscles. Radius and ulna, where are they? Which one's which one's medial? So whenever we refer to the human body, we're assuming it's in what position? Normal anatomic position, right? Lateral bone of the lower arm would be the radius, because that's the radial pulse, and then the ulna on that side. All right. The diaphysis, epiphysis, and the metaphysis. They don't even have metaphysis on this. this one, do they? Okay. 
There's a greater and lesser two gives. Kind of still practice that. All right. So the diaphysis is what? The main shaft of the long bone, the epiphysis, and the metaphysis. Where are growth plates located? And what's the covering called on the long bones? Periosteum. Medical prefix peri means what? And the root word osteo. So the periosteum is around the bone, right? Joints are formed where two long bones come in contact. Joints are held tight. They articulate together, but they're held tight by what? What holds bone to bone? Ligament. Easy way not to get that confused is that the biggest that Achilles tendon, right? Everybody seems knows what the Achilles tendon is, but that connects muscle to your calcaneus, right? So, um, let me ask, what is it called if that joint gets disrupted? Like if, it, if this person sustains an injury and the joint is disrupted to where the bones aren't articulating together anymore, what do we call that? All right. So, what if it's just partially interrupted? Subluxation. There you go. A sublux. Am I going too fast for anybody? Because I'm thinking that a lot of this is review, right? Okay. It says that the shoulder joint is a ball and socket joint. Where's the, where's the other main ball and socket joint? In your hip, right? What do you call the ball of that femur? Okay. But that whole section right up there, where, you know, the femur comes up and then you've got a... It's the greater trochanter, okay? It's where, where it makes that about 45 degree turn and goes up into that femoral head, I guess, if you will. And, and then the socket is the acetabulum. All right. So... The skeletal system is divided into two main sections, right? You've got the axial skeleton and you have the appendicular, appendicular skeleton. The axial skeleton is composed, you look at the skull, the, the cervical spine, and you look at all the, 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 the thoracic cage, the vertebral column, everything down to the hips. Uh, the appendicular skeleton is basically the appendix, the, the, the arms, the legs, things that are connected. Everything you can look at. <laughs> yeah. The skull consists of 28 bones in three anatomical groups. The auditory ossicles. How many auditory ossicles do you have? Six. Somebody else just said it. Why do you say six? Three on each side, right? Who's saying that? I'm blind. Hey, there you go. I am blind and I'm deaf. Huh? Yeah. So you have six auditory ossicles. What are their names? Malleus, Incus, 
and stapes. What did they teach you in the in the ninth grade to call them? Hammer, anvil, and stirrup, right? Because they kind of one one strikes the other, and one looks like a stirrup, I guess. Uh, the cranium and the face. The cranium. What are the uh, seven bones that we talked about in EMT that make up the cranial vault? What are they? Frontal, two temporals, two parietal, occipital, and then the cribriform plate. That's kind of like the floor, if you will, that the brain kind of sits on. And that's not exact, obviously, but you get the picture. Uh, what are some bones that make up your face? Zygomas. What are those in English? Cheekbones. The zygomas. What's the upper jaw? Maxilla. Mandible. And what's that joint right there where... Temporomandibular joint, or TMJ, right? The cranial vault consists of eight bones. Uh, bones of the skull are connected together by sutures and fibrous tissue called fontanelles link the sutures. Now, obviously, when we when we talk about fontanelles, we naturally think of uh, uh, infants, right? How many fontanelles do you have? One's in front, one's in the back. What do they call them? Anterior and posterior. Yeah, don't worry about that. All right, y'all stretch yourself for a second. All right, so an orbit. What is the orbit? I suck it. How many different bones make up the orbit? And I always thought it was weird that they put this slide right here. But So the, the tops of the zygomas make up the bottom of the orbit, right? So the bottom of the frontal bone of the cranium makes up the top of the orbits. What's the side here? Well, no, that's the zygomatics. What's on the side over here? Temporal, right? Temporal bones. Okay. Um, so the, yeah, the, that's right inside the nose. Cone-shaped fossa. Whenever you see that word fossa, you're kind of talking about an, kind of like a, an indention in a bone, if you will, or like a, an area that's, like the glenoid fossa is in the shoulder. That's where the, the, uh, the humeral head, that's the socket of a ball and socket joint. But whenever you see fossa, we're talking about basically an indention or a recessed part of a bone. Uh, it does contain blood vessels, nerves, and fat. And a blowout fracture is a leakage of blood and fat into your maxillary sinus. Blowout fracture, that, that says nothing about an eye, does it? But what is a blowout fracture? It's when you kind of break your zygomas or part of that orbit and the, and the eyes kind of kind of locked in place weird place for that slide don't understand it do what yeah we won't we don't that, we won't be doing that in emt or advanced emt yeah uh your nasal cavities is comprised of portions of of the several facial bones as well Your mandible is the large movable bone 
comprised, comprising the lower jaw and containing the lower teeth. The posterior condyle of the mandible articulates with the temporal bone at the temporomandibular joint. What do we call that uh, condition? Like if it pops real bad and you have headaches and you grind your teeth. Yeah, T-M-J, temporomandibular joint. That's what we're talking about. Now, what is unique about the hyoid bone? The only bone that's not connected to another bone. It doesn't articulate with any other bones in the body. It just kind of floats in the throat. And without your temporal bone and your ninth pair of cranial nerves, what could you not do? Swallow. There you go. What is that right there? That's your hyoid bone. All right, the neck, the cervical spine. How many cervical vertebrae do we have? Seven. Seven of them. What's the top two called? That's the atlas axis joint. C1, C2, right? They're counted numerically through C1 through C through C7, but C1 and C2 is called the atlas axis joint. And if I ask you, what does the atlas part of your atlas axis joint allow you to do? You should nod your head. The axis or C2 is what allows you to do that, right? All right. The neck also contains the carotid arteries, your thyroid cartilage. Now, all the all the guys in the room should have that little thing right there, right? If on your thyroid cartilage, the Adam's apple, if you go just inferior to that, you'll feel a horizontal slit in that hard cartilage. What what cartilage are you feeling right there at the bottom of that slit? That's the cricoid cartilage. That's right. So the cricothyroid membrane would be between the two, right? So therefore, cricothyroid. And those large muscles in the neck that actually also have another purpose, but the sternocleidomastoid muscles and your C2 kind of lets you do that, right? But what other purpose do those sternocleidomastoids have? They are accessory muscles of respiration. That's right, when things get difficult for you to breathe and you feel like you don't have enough oxygen, what allows air? What allows anything to move in the human body? Pressure gradients. Pressure gradients, that's right. And if you have this sensation that you're not getting enough oxygen or enough air, what does the body try to do? It tries to expand that chest a little bit further to create a greater pressure gradient, therefore to pull in more air, Right. Sternocleidomastoids assist with that. You don't normally use them to breathe, right? What? Let's break that name down too. Sterno. So they kind of come down close to the sternum, right? Where's your mastoid process? That's that bony prominence posterior to your ear, right? That big knot that you feel. That's your mastoid process. So where do you think that muscle kind of runs? From there down to there. Sternocleidomastoid muscles. Right there. Doom. How many total vertebrae do we have? 33 is the correct answer on that one. 
first seven cervical. How can you find C7? How do you know where the cervical spine ends and the thoracic spine begins on a patient? Yeah, if they if they kind of leaning forward a little bit and you're you're palpating the cervical spine, it's the most prominent vertebrae. That is C7. C- cervical spine, the thoracic spine has how many? Lumbar has how many? Sacrum or sacral. All right, how about the uh, the coccygeal or coccyx? How many fused vertebrae do you have? The last nine are fused. That's correct. Cervical, thoracic, lumbar, sacrum, and coccyx. The sacrum and the coccyx are fused. Spinal cord is an extension of the brain. It comes, what's, so, there's a large naturally occurring hole in the bottom of your occipital bone. What's that bone, uh, that opening called? It's the foramen magnum. The brain stem passes through that and then turns into the spinal cord and it continues. In general, how long is a spinal cord? About 18 inches. Is this review enough? All right. The thorax is formed by 12 uh, thoracic vertebrae and 12 pair of ribs. The last pair, or last two pair of ribs, the 11th pair and the, and the 12th pair, have a, a more specific name. What do we call those? We call those floating ribs because they are not attached to the sternum, right? What are the 11th and 12th pair of ribs attached to? The 10th. And what connects them? And okay. <laughs> All right, kind of going off script a little bit here. Where is the costovertebral angle located? They're posterior, right? Cost or root word cost means rib, right? Costovertebral angle. So we're talking about where that twelfth rib comes into the vertebral column. That it, and what are the organs that are located at the costovertebral angle? The kidneys. Three parts of the sternum. The manubrium, the body, and the xiphoid process. Where's the manubrium? Top or bottom of the sternum? The top third. And then, of course, the body's the main part. And the xiphoid process is the lower third. What lies just underneath the xiphoid process? The liver. That's correct. So if you're doing going back to compressions, you're doing chest compressions on somebody and your hand placement is too low and you break the xiphoid process, it's going to puncture the liver, right? The liver holds how much of your total body blood volume at any given time? Up to 40% of all of your blood can be in the liver at one time. So, is that a good thing or a bad thing to lacerate the liver? It's bad. It's bad. It's badder than normal. No, it won't buff out. <laughs> All right. It, it says here that the thoracic cage contains the heart, lungs, great vessels, and the esophagus. What is that? 
area between the lungs where the heart, great vessels, and esophagus are contained? The mediastinum. The mediastinum is where all that's located. How many lobes do we have in our lungs? Three over here, two over here, right? The appendicular skeleton, again, we're talking about the, the upper extremities and the lower extremities. The shoulder girdle uh, attaches upper extremity to the body at the glenohumeral joint. That glenoid fossa in the head of the humerus is where it technically comes together. It is a ball and socket joint. Uh, what's the medical term for your shoulder blade? Scapula. Scapula. What's the most frequently broken bone in the human body? Clavicle. Clavicle. What's unique about the clavicle? It runs horizontal. It is a horizontal. There's not many truly horizontal bones in the body, but the clavicle is. <laughs> yep. got the humerus, you've got the radius and the ulna, then you've got the gliding joint or the little bones that make up the wrist and then the hands and the fingers. Um, the bones of the hands called the what? Well, the wrist and then the hand would be carpals, metacarpals, and then the fingers are... What are the three bones that make up the pelvic girdle? The pubic symphysis, the ilium, and the ischium. Now, the ilium, I-L-E-U-M, right, in the pelvis, what if we change that I-L-I-U-M? What is it then? This is part of the small intestines. That's great. And I also gave y'all another name for the iliac crest. Hmm? I gave you another medical name for the iliac crest. They are your hip bones. The iliac crest is part of the ilium, but I gave you another name for those. Anybody know what it is? We played we played hangman with it too, I think. Oscoxane, that's correct. Why is it important to know these alternate names? Because registry may ask you about the Oscoxane, and you might say, I don't know what the hell that is. When in fact, we're talking about the hip bones. All right, the lower extremity, the hip, thigh, knee, leg, ankle, foot, toes. The femur, as we've said already, is the longest and strongest bone in the body. Uh, the femoral head articulates uh, with the pelvic girdle at the acetabulum. Right there. And what's that bone right there? That's the part that hurts you if I don't give you a break in time, right? I thought you were going to say no. Nope. Tibia and fibula. Tibia is your shin bone. 
It's longer, thicker. The fibula runs behind and beside, like I said, posterior and lateral. Serves as an attachment point for your calf muscles. And patella is a kneecap. What about down in your foot? What are the, the medical names of the bones that kind of make up your ankle? Okay. But as, as the tibia comes down, and, and, and on the, especially on the lateral side, and it kind of flares out a little bit, is there another name that's used? I'm thinking uh, like a T or something. A talus. And it, so well, what is the term for your ankle? Because you have four of them, right? Four ankles, so to speak. You've got the one on the outside of your left leg, but me, that's medically known as the what? Left lateral malleolus. The, the one on the inside of your left leg is the left medial malleolus. And then the right medial, right lateral. And then your heel bone's called the what? Calcaneus. Medical, I guess, root word calc, C-A-L-C, means stone or heel. <coughs> the knee is a hinge joint. Not supposed to bend but one way, right? Yeah. A few years ago, Georgia-Tennessee game. Asked Nick Chubb which way the knee's supposed to bend. <laughs> Uh, he's doing good now. All right. The talus articulates with the tibia and fibula to form the ankle, uh, like we were saying. And uh, yeah, then you've got the, the tarsals, metatarsals, phalanges. And like we've said several times already, the heel bone is the calcaneus. All right. So that was the anatomy, the physiology. Uh, that That's... That's what it does, right? The physiology of the skeletal system. We talked about it uh, kind of at the beginning of the, I guess, get-go here. But what all do, do the bones do for us? They protect. They give us our, our human form. They allow for movement in conjunction with the muscular system. Um, helps create those red blood cells, white blood cells. Um, is there anything else that the skeletons do for us? Right. So, when you look at the muscles and the skeleton together, the musculoskeletal system, that, it, that really goes toward providing that upright posture, it allows for the movement. There's three types of muscles in the body. What did I tell you? Uh, skeletal muscles. Another name for skeletal muscles. What did I say that was? Striated, Striated muscle. Remember we talked about chicken breasts, right? When you go to KFC and you get that extra crispy and then you pull that meat and there's a little strains in there, those are striations, right? So what were you supposed to say the next time you went to KFC and took a bite? You say, mm, striated muscle. Yeah. Our voluntary muscle. What's another name for voluntary muscle? Same thing. Voluntary Striated 
Skeletal. All the same. It's kind of tricky. Involuntary. Smooth muscle. Where are they located at in the body and what do they do? They surround tubular structures in the body, right? Your esophagus, your intestines, your blood vessels. Somebody please tell me what peristalsis is. Man, you are on the right note page tonight, ain't you? Line for line. Yeah. See, so what does that tell you about me? I don't know, nothing new. That's what that should tell you, right? Smooth muscles surround tubular structures in the body. It, it helps move objects through those uh, tubular structures. Peristalsis is what that is. Wave-like contractions that move objects through tubular structures in the body. It also helps maintain blood pressure, right? How do smooth muscles help you maintain blood pressure? If, if the body detects a drop in blood pressure, what might those muscles do? Kind of, huh? Constrict a little bit. The volume remains the same. Container gets smaller. It's simple hydraulics, right? What happens to pressure? Goes up. If they relax and the container gets bigger, what happens to pressure? It drops. Again, simple hydraulics. So, cardiac muscle. One word. What is unique about cardiac muscle? Automaticity. That means each cell of the heart thinks it is the heart. It can generate its own electrical impulse. It can generate its own electrical impulse. So the heart can continue to beat independent of the brain, right? Because it can generate that, that electrical impulse on its own. All right, so we said that, that um, bones kind of protect vital organs, but we said except for the abdomen. What type of limited protection is afforded the, the organs in your abdomen? It's your abdominal muscles, right? So if an organ is injured in the abdomen, how do the muscles react? They get rigid and kind of distend. They kind of stick out and get really hard, right? Oxygen is required for the breakdown of glucose and uh, really in all the cells. But again, getting back to that, if oxygen is not present, do the cells just stop producing energy? No. no. Production of energy is metabolism. Metabolism in the presence of oxygen is called aerobic metabolism. But if there's no oxygen, it still produces energy, but we call it what? Because A or AN means without. Uh, what changes then? If, if when you have aerobic metabolism, like we said earlier, what are the byproducts? Carbon dioxide is the big one. But lactic acid is the byproduct for anaerobic metabolism. That's why your muscles get sore, right? If you push it beyond what it's accustomed to doing. Like I said, if we all took off right now and ran 10 miles. Now, I'm going to be good for about nine. But that 10th mile, I might get a little tired, right? Ain't that funny? 
<laughs> so anyhow, you burn up all the oxygen that's available to that muscle, right? So then it starts producing lactic acid and it sets on the muscle. And that's why you're sore the next day. Lactic acid. How do you move acid? You introduce oxygen. There you go. Are we talking across the border? Just in general. <laughs> no, not across the border. <laughs> I see I have, to, I have to be more specific with you in class. I can see that now. All right. The respiratory system. What does it do? What What does the respiratory system do for us? Uh, Mr. Wiggins, but if once you make that decision, I got your book in this in this box right here, all right? You, you want me to go ahead and give it to you tonight and then Okay. Just joining the class and you haven't already redeemed that code and logged on online, you need to do so. Because as soon as I finish lecturing on this chapter, I'm going to put uh, chapter 7, or like the human body, advanced human body or whatever. That's how you can tell the difference between the EMT level test and the advanced level test. But those just joining the class, take them all. It doesn't matter. Once you, once you scratch that off and put that in, it's kind of changed now. That's what I thought initially too, but that gets you into this class is what I was told. They kind of did it different. Uh, now, Wesley, you I know for a fact you've already joined the class. That's all you used was the code inside the book, right? The code is in the all right, continuing on here. The respiratory system, where does it begin? In your mouth. And? Nose and mouth. The nares, the mouth. Where does it end? The alveoli. That's correct. Uh, the upper airway includes the nose, the mouth, tongue, jaw, oral cavity, larynx, and pharynx. In an adult, well, it doesn't matter whether it's an adult or not, but where does the upper airway end? The glottic opening, right there between the vocal cords. That's the divining line between the upper airway and the lower airway. So, and that's important to know because when you hear different uh, airway sounds, adventitious airway sounds, depending on what you hear, you can know right off the bat is the problem in the upper airway or is it in the lower airway, which might indicate to you steps that you need to take to kind of correct it if there's a problem. Okay? Again, the nares, the mouth, uh, what do you call that? The pharynx. P-H-A-R-Y-N-X, that's just a fancy way of saying the throat. 
Okay? The larynx is a fancy way of saying what? It's the voice box. That's where your vocal cords are. That's where you make sound. Okay? That's how you produce speech or, or make noises of any kind, really. But the back of the throat behind the nose is called more specifically the nasopharynx, right? The back of the throat behind the mouth is called the oropharynx, okay? Then you get down to the larynx or the voice box. You've got that glottic opening or that space between the vocal cords. <clears throat> then you come on down the trachea, the windpipe, to an area where it bifurcates or splits in two. That is the carina, C-A-R-I-N-A. Now, it's not terribly important to know at this point, <clears throat> but you, when, it, when it bifurcates into the left and right main stem bronchi, the right main stem is a lot straighter than the left. The left is going to make a harder turn than the right, so to speak, okay? So just so you know, if you're helping your paramedic in the back of the ambulance and they intubate a patient, and then you're bagging them and you just see the left side of the chest rising and falling, but not the right, that just means they push that tube too deep. They need to back it out a little bit because it's only ventilating the left, excuse me, the right side will go up instead of the left side because it, it, it's, it just went too deep. And the way it bifurcates, it, it can happen if you're not careful. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. All right. So it bifurcates at the carina and goes down to the right and left main stem bronchi and they continue to bifurcate or split in two, right? And each time they bifurcate, they get a little bit smaller. Right. At what point do the bronchi turn into bronchioles? 15. At the 15th generation of bifurcations. Has anybody had that on your EMT test yet? That? Some of y'all will, I promise you. It'll be there. So, so now you've got the bronchioles and what sets at the end, what is considered the terminal ends, and that's plural, the terminal ends of the airway, the alveoli. How many of them do you have? 350 million. How do you know 350 million? 350 million. Oh, excuse me, 350. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's why we got a 97. Yeah, All right. 350 million alveoli. You got it wrong. I just wonder who counted, you know. But there's 350 million alveoli. And that is an easy number to remember because currently there's 350 million Americans. Now, each time you take a breath... And the chest rises and expands. What do we call that? Tidal volume. Tidal volume. So how much air does the typical adult breathe in? 500 cc's. 500 cc's or 500 milliliters. But is all of that usable? No. 350 milliliters or, or cc's is usable because that's the air that actually reaches the alveoli. The other 150 is called what? Dead space. That's the, that's the air that's still in their nose or in your oropharynx or down in your uh, bronchioles or whatever. But that 150 never makes it to the alveoli, so it's not usable. Therefore, we call it dead space. Each 
There you go. Simple, simple math is good for all of us, right? So, who feels lucky? What? What? I don't know. Should I It's going to be what? All right. Since you're looking at it, I ain't going to call on y'all. No, no, no. Yeah. The neuroregulation of the respiratory system. How do we breathe? What has to take place for us to breathe in the first place? So, Christian, I want you to tell us. Chemoreceptors protect an elevated level of carbon dioxide. So let me stop you. So we don't really breathe because of a lack of oxygen then. Correct. Right? We breathe because of a buildup of carbon dioxide. All right? So your chemoreceptors are located in the the carotid (coughs) arteries and the aortic arch. They detect elevated amounts of carbon dioxide, right? Then what happens? Sends a signal to the brainstem. Okay. Then it sends a signal to the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm. Uh-huh. They contract, which causes a negative pressure in the thoracic cavity. All right, well, let me stop you for a minute. Why does it send a signal to the brainstem in the first place? Because Breathing? Brainstem controls breathing, right? That is what you call your apneustic centers are located in the brainstem. It controls breathing. All right. So it goes to the brainstem. The brainstem sends the, that signal on to the intercostal muscles in the diaphragm. And what? Creates a negative pressure in the thoracic How does it do that? Um, by expanding. Okay. And, and then turn, draw air in. Mm-hmm. And then the stretch receptors. The herring brew. The herring brew reflex. Um, stop that expansion. And then the diaphragm. You know, you started out pretty strong. You know that, right? Yeah. Diaphragm relaxes and it causes a positive pressure. Okay. Which causes air to exhale. Crystal, you're right. No, that's wrong. What did he forget, Crystal? Help him out. I have no idea. No idea, James. Help him out. What did he forget? No. I was up until like. I didn't get any sick last night because my dad was in the, I think my dad was in the emergency room. Oh, no. well, I'm going to leave you alone. You know, Tanner, looking away from me ain't going to keep me from talking. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm tired too. All right, look, we're all tired. All right, so look, you're right. But why does, why does the body... Why, why does the body expand the size of the chest in the first place? That's to create that pressure gradient, right? So... When, when that signal is sent to the, to the intercostal muscles and the diaphragm, it causes them to contract. And that increases the size or, or the, the overall volume of the thoracic cavity, right? It gets bigger, but volume remains the same, so to speak. So what happens to pressure? It decreases. And it decreases to the point to where there's now a gradient between the pressure in your chest and atmosphere. So air rushes in, right? And it's going to rush in any hole that it can find. So if you had a bullet hole in your chest, it's going to go in that hole just as well as it does your nose or your mouth because it doesn't know the difference. But luckily, most of us don't have a bullet hole in our chest, so it goes in the nose and the mouth. And it continues to go in 
And that's the active process of respiration, right? Work has to take place to make that happen. Those muscles have to contract. Air rushes in until pressure is equalized. The Herring-Brewer reflex, um, which is in the stretch receptors of the lungs, cause you to stop breathing in. That's typically where diffusion takes place. We swap that oxygen for carbon dioxide across that one cell thick membrane that divides the alveoli and your capillary beds in the lungs. Then you relax and all the muscles go back to its original size. The chest wall goes back to its original size. Now the size has gotten smaller. The volume still increased. So that creates another pressure gradient, but in the opposite direction, right? Now pressure is higher inside your chest than it is outside the chest, so you exhale until pressure is equalized. And that's the passive process of respiration. So, so let me ask you then, the natural act of breathing, is that a negative pressure process or a positive pressure process? It's a negative pressure. You decrease pressure inside the chest and air's pulled in. Negative pressure. If we're assisting somebody who's not breathing on their own or not breathing adequately, what do we call that? That's positive pressure ventilation. We're forcing air in. So there's a difference. And that, and that's what you need to know about all that. All right, so again, upper airway, lower airway, the dividing line is the, um, the glottic opening. The lungs are surrounded, all organs in the body really are surrounded by membranes, right? What is the membrane that encapsulates the lungs called? Well, it's the pleura, but there's two layers to it, your visceral pleura and the parietal pleura, right? Is there a space between those two layers? There's a potential space, right? They're, they're in contact. There's really not a space there now, but things like air and blood or air and blood can get in there and it causes problems when it does. See, we already talked about all that. The muscles are breathing. Why do we breathe again? Why do we breathe again? There you go. And that's how we breathe. All right. I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to stop here.